Welcome to Gear Up with Gear Experts, episode 10, RF Safety. Gear Up with Gear Experts is a bi-weekly show hosted by me, John Medina, and my colleague, Alex Giddings. The show is for at-height workers, industry, and construction, and is brought to you and produced by GME Supply and Columbia Safety and Supply. This episode's theme is RF Safety. Radio frequency, or RF, isn't always something that people consider dangerous, but prolonged exposure can wreak havoc on the body. Today we are proud to have Max Birch as our guest in the studio with us. Max is the lead engineer for FieldSense. FieldSense is an industry-leading manufacturer of personal RF monitors. Max, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into the RF safety industry, as well as a little background on FieldSense? Hi, John. Let's say my journey into RF safety really started with a background in electromagnetics. So I studied um, electronic engineering and then specialized in electromagnetics. And I've sort of been in the antenna design field all along. Uh, First spent some time on phased arrays that go on Boeings. And then moved over to the handset side, spent a couple of years in cell phone design, antennas and cell phones. And then um, joined a company which actually specializes in RF safety. And at the time, I inherited um, the product they were working on, namely the FieldSense originally, which was designed for a client. And the client was a big carrier in our market that really wanted to make sure their staff and contractors working on base stations were really well taken care of. So they approached us to help them firstly just understand what is the international legislation out there, how to make it practical, because a lot of legislation out there is not particularly practical. They leave that up to you. And so we went about helping them set up an RF safety program, understanding what are the ins and outs of RF safety and products like the FieldSense, which have come out of that. And as the listeners can obviously hear, Max is not from the States. Max, can you go and kind of just give a little bit of information about where you're from, how you uh, got the device originally to the U.S., um, and kind of your relationship with us at Jamie Supply and Columbia Safety and Supply? So I'm South African, and um, this, when I refer to the market that we're from and the carrier that we work with, it's actually Vodacom, which is a Vodafone company in our market. Now, many years back, actually, I think it was 2011, when the first generation FieldSense um, was just entering the market, um, we were approached by um, the president of GME Supply, Bo Aero, um, to actually distribute the product in, in North America and that has been exceptionally successful and I would say a big factor in that is just that GME places a very high emphasis on number one understanding the products that they sell and number two service it's all about service and, and these are things that we strongly believe in we don't um, we, we don't believe in over promise under deliver we've always been very upfront about what our products do and we try and make sure that our clients have good value for money and that we really focus on what are the core features, what are the core elements that our clients need and and try our best to deliver that. And I think the partnership with GME Supply has been exceptional and and continues to grow. And um, yeah, just that, I mean, it feels like family. It's been an absolute pleasure working with the team and um, yeah, I really enjoy it. Awesome. So I guess next, let's just kind of get into what is RF safety? Um, what kind of frequencies are we looking out for specifically in the telecom market? And, uh, and what does the, the FieldSense device uh, provide to climbers that use that device? The primary effect of RF that, we, that is very well known and documented is um, heating. 
You know, we all use it every day when you have your microwave oven at home. And um, th that's great when you have intentional heating, um, but it's not that great when you're up on a, on a mast and uh, you're the thing being warmed up. So the long and the short of it is it's really limiting exposure to RF, which has the potential to heat up your body. Now, it's pretty technical in how your body interacts with the fields and which frequencies are more important than others. So if you're working down in FM and broadcast, um, those are very high power transmitters and hence can have a very big impact on your body. And on top of that, our bodies are more receptive to the lower frequencies than to the higher. So if you think about the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, light is a part of it, but as you go higher and higher in frequency, the penetration into your body is less. So one of the key aspects as well, so if you look at the FCC limits is they are not flat. It's not a flat E field or H field over frequency. It's actually what we call a shaped response. And that is actually accounting for how your body interacts with the field. So it's part of the power density that you're exposed to and the amount of power that your body absorbs ultimately determines the impact on your body. And naturally, you know, we need to limit the impact to your body because we don't need, um, if you're up on a mast, it's a warm day, you've just been climbing, uh, you can actually very easily push someone into thermal stress. And that's really why it's really important to limit the amount of RF you're exposed to and to understand when you are going into these areas. I mean, also rooftop sites is a typical area where people often don't realize what's up on a rooftop site. And a lot of transmitters, they don't always look particularly technical. Uh, so you'll see some antennas out there. You know, I always said um, one of the things to look out for is actually the size of the cable. Um, the thickness of a cable will give you a, a good indication of what's coming out of there. So if you see an antenna that you don't recognize, but it's got a two-inch thick cable going in there, you really need to pay attention to it. And that's really why having RF monitors helps. Um, it it, it complements training. So training is really important, but having an RF safety monitor helps you sort of right at the edge when you're out on the rooftop just to have that peace of mind as to what's there and what's influencing you. So going back to kind of that first thing you touched on, the, the microwave oven effect, is, is that literally when you're being exposed to too high of uh, yep. amplification, I guess, of RF, that it's literally cooking your insides? Ultimately, yes. So at, at, at high enough power density, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. So if we look at a microwave oven, um, a microwave oven is typically at least one kilowatt of power going into a small metallic chamber. So it's really contained. Now, if you look at a typical base station antenna with a remote radio head, that's only about 60 watts when all channels are active going into that panel. So you can immediately see there's a big difference. So even if I hug a base station antenna, which I don't recommend you do, besides the fiberglass you might get in areas you don't really want it, um, it it's not going to have the same impact immediately. But immediately you can see the actual power levels are important. So a lot of people look at antennas and fear antennas. The antenna is actually only directing the power into the air. You know, an, an antenna is really just a way of matching the coax cable and getting power into the air. And all it's doing is it's telling you where the power is going or it's helping you understand it. But what's really important is the amount of power coming out the antenna. So I can have a big antenna and put one watt out of it. It means nothing. I can have a small antenna and put a kilowatt out of it, and it means a lot. So I guess going back to the, the rooftop idea, it sounds like for most rooftops in the U.S., there's not a lot of potential for 
RF safety or or a concern for high RF just because of the way those are designed or is it an unknown? I think a rooftop, ironically, you know, if I were to rank um, situations where you can potentially be overexposed, rooftops for me are one of the highest. Partly because the, the people that gain access to a rooftop I mean, it's guys working on air conditioners, um, elevators, all kinds of things get access to rooftops that know very little about what's up there. On top of that, typically rooftop sites, if you think about it from a radio planner point of view, once you have a building owner who is receptive to having antennas on his roof, all of a sudden everyone who wants to get something up there is there and there's only so much space on top of a rooftop so it's very difficult to place antennas in such a way that they would all be for instance looking outward over the edge of the building is practically impossible where if you look at a mast typical cell phone mast those antennas are all pointing outward it's a very let's call it an intentional structure where rooftops (laughs) you can see all kinds of things and and whether it's small community fm radio stations that are putting out a kilowatt into a very small little antenna I would definitely be more concerned about rooftops. Now, you get guys working on um, FM broadcast. Of course, by the time you're climbing one of those masts, you really know what you're up against. Uh, and so there, I would say your chance of exposure are quite high, but it's not just every second person who can actually climb one of those and, and gets permission to climb them. So rooftops are actually rank pretty high, and most often it's overlooked. Uh, so definitely one to take, to, to take into account. Sure. And when you say mast, that's in the U.S., we typically call them cell phone towers. So Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interchangeable. Yeah, no worries. So um, I guess if you do get exposed to dangerous levels of RF, what are, what are some symptoms of RF sickness? Well, what you have is um, very few people will notice it initially. But you can, you can ascribe the same symptoms as you would have when you're running a fever. So if you get to the point where you start experiencing the same symptoms as you have from, from a fever, um, and, and uh, this is difficult because you don't want to confuse it. You know, if, if you've been doing a lot of climbing that day, it's been a hot day, and you just haven't been taking in fluids, well, you might just have a mild degree of dehydration or something. So the key is not to confuse the two. But typically, by the time your body temperature has risen uh, about 2 degrees Celsius, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, sorry about that, Um, but by the time you've risen about 2 degrees Celsius, you're actually starting to go into mild heat stress. And the problem with this is your body can only handle a certain amount of heat. Now, our, our bodies are really well designed in that we are able to retain or shed heat as necessary to a certain point. So the, the actual FCC limits for exposure are very conservative. And, and that's why if one gets to, if you remain within the occupational limits, then you can be sure that it is having a negligible effect on your body. However, if you're totally disregarding it, you can get to the point where it is actually starting to raise your core body temperature. So it's not the same as actually standing near a heat source where you sort of suddenly feel heat on your hand or your face. It's more a case of that your body is actually absorbing this power and it's slowly lifting your core temperature. And ultimately, if, this, if, if you don't control that, you can actually get to the point where you start doing irrational things. You, you can actually start making a mistake. And, and, and one of the problems with RF is very seldom are any accidents ascribed to RF as such, but it could just be that you've been pushed into heat stress and you've done something foolish and fallen off the mast. And then it gets ascribed to human error, but actually the, the person was um, you know, uh, under heat stress 
to the heat exhaustion or heat, heat exhaustion, stroke, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I guess what uh, you, you, we talked about the shaped response. Yeah. How does and and the way that the FCC gives those uh, regulations and yeah. the exposure levels? How does the FieldSense device handle that? So the key to actually have a let's what do we call it a shaped probe or a shaped response device, it has to take into account all the sources of RF present and and weigh each one of them up according to the limits and then actually give you your total combined exposure. So for instance, if I'm working on a rooftop and there's a small radio station there and the percentage of exposure that I'm receiving from that antenna, let's say that's 50% of the, the safe working limits. And on top of that, there could still be a transmitter at 900 megahertz or 1900 megahertz. And let's say each one of those have a contribution of 25% of the limits at their specific frequency. Then what the device is really doing is it's taking all of those together to tell you, hey, your total combined exposure at this instance is actually 100%. So even though each one of those transmitters individually are below the limits, the, the key is to actually be assessing your total combined exposure and give you a quick readout and say, hey, you know, you're now approaching 100%, you really need to start paying attention or back away. And so one of the keys to actually being allowed to gain access to areas where you're working above the public limits, where you're actually getting near the occupational limits, is that you have to be trained and you have to be able to control your exposure. And so that's key to know when you get to near the limits that you know okay I'm now at the point where I need to start doing something and the limits do actually uh, a lot of people get a bit confused by what we call the six minute averaging rule so the six minute averaging rule I always use the analogy of um, hot water if if you were to stick your hand into hot water very quickly and pull it out again you have very little thermal impact on your body Whereas if you put your hand into hot water and kept it there for a couple of minutes, it's going to have an impact on you. Now, RF is, is much the same. And the six-minute averaging rule, what it really means is that your average exposure over any given six-minute period should not exceed 100% of the FCC limits. So what that really tells you is you could have a brief period where you pass by an antenna. You might go up to 150%, but soon thereafter, you back down at 50 or 20 or 10%. And then you're actually still within the limits because then the impact on your body is still low. So that's, it's good to understand these things. And this is also part of why training is, is really important. So guys, understand the fundamentals of this because you don't want someone, you know, the RF monitor starts beeping at 50%. Um, you, you don't want someone to be inadvertently made to panic. They need to really understand what the monitor is doing. And the monitor is giving you an early warning to say, hey, you're coming to an area now where you're going to be exceeding the limits. Really, do you know what you're doing? And that's really important. So I think I think RF monitors go hand in hand with training, um, and and I'd definitely recommend that. Yeah. So it's it's it also your hot water analogy made me think of the old elementary school trick of running your finger through the flame on a lighter. You can you, you can pass your finger through, but yep. at the point you hold your hand over it, then you start to burn yourself. Absolutely. That's yeah. exactly what it is. And I mean, I think we all know it, ironically. You know, if we come back to a microwave oven, if you're trying to reheat your cup of coffee, you put it in there for five seconds, you've had little to no impact on it. Mm -hmm. But put it in for five minutes and, um, well, it's toast. Yeah. So what are some misconceptions about RF? You know, there, there are the, some folks out there that think cell phone towers are giving us all brain cancer and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. What, what are some misconceptions? Well, I think like many, many new forms of technology, it's not that new anymore, but 
you know, each time, each time we see a new technology come out, a new modulation scheme, 5G, people are concerned. And I think quite often it's because people don't actually understand the, f- the, the fundamentals of the technology. And so if we look at base station antennas, if, if like I mentioned earlier, if you look at the power levels, um, just the mere fact that there's a, v- a huge difference in the power levels really determines um, the impact on your body. So if we talk about a microwave oven, which is a kilowatt of power at least into a contained area, has a huge impact. Where if you look at a cell phone uh, mast and you have antennas up there, firstly, the antennas are quite big, so they look intimidating. And and, and there's been quite a few cases of, of public concern where the structure has gone up, the antennas have gone up, and there are complaints from the public, unfortunately, from people experiencing various symptoms, yet there is no transmitter live yet. And it, it kind of highlights how strong our perceptions of risk impact us. So, you know, ironically, I actually always say if the safest place to be is actually near a cell phone antenna, and, and the reason why, I mean, I come out of a mobile development background too, your cell phone and the base station are busy adjusting, actively adjusting the power levels needed while you're in call or while you're downloading data. And that's really to conserve power. Because if you think about it, like you know, like the three of us sitting here close to each other, we don't need to shout at each other. We're right next to each other. So we naturally are adjusting our volume output to what's necessary to sustain a, a, a link, to sustain a conversation. Now, your base station and the cell phone does exactly the same thing. So if I'm 20 miles away from a base station, you can immediately see that your cell phone is having mm-hmm. to crank up the power and the base station for your specific sector and channels cranking up the power to sustain the link. Whereas the closer I get to that base station, the less power is needed by both my handset and the base station. And ironically, a lot of people are concerned about base stations, but your cell phone itself is, is the highest source of power that most people ever encounter. And of course, you're sticking it up against your ear. And a certain percentage of the power does go into your brain. Now, keep in mind, it's really low. So if you think about... You know, back when I was working more on GSM systems, a system like that can put out an average of 0.25 watts um, in a call when you're really far from the base station. So it's really, really low power levels. But also keep in mind this technology, you know, we've been using cell phones and before that cordless decked phones for quite a while. And there is an extensive amount of research that has been done into the safety of cell phones and, and RF transmitters. And I always like the, the whole topic of research is actually really large, but one of the, the, the sanity checks for me has always been that, well, look, this technology has been prevalent for a certain amount of time. And if it was really exceptionally hazardous to your health, considering how many billion people are using cell phones by now, I'm quite sure we would have seen it by now. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a really big topic of discussion, but the nice thing is, governments around the world really do take this seriously because you can imagine if it was let's say it was potentially really hazardous for your health if the governments of the world hadn't taken this serious and let's say we made a total mistake all the engineers and scientists were wrong well then we've really got a problem on our hands so you can see governments and government healthcare have got a a high incentive to ensure that technologies like these are actually safe for the users because ultimately if it's not 
it's going to become a government healthcare problem. So there is actually a very high amount of research funding available and a lot of really prestigious institutions have done a lot of work into this. And the key is to also understand the research. Now, I've always said that for some researchers, it, it's really, um, let's say, boring working on RF, excuse the word. <laughs> But a, a lot of the researchers, a, you'll have a good researcher who'll put together a good study. It'll last 10 years. He'll come to a conclusion, and quite often they come to the conclusion that, well, they see no effect. Now, sadly enough, that researcher's name will never be known, and he will never actually land up on, on CNN, in, on the headlines, because there's no sensation. Mm. However, what we often see is there could be studies that are done where there are, there are serious flaws in the study design. Now, what happens is perhaps that researcher, he personally doesn't believe there's a flaw in his design, but his, the peer review of his work, they've come to the conclusion that there were some things that he didn't take into account. And then this person leaks this information to the media. The media loves it because it's nice and sensational, gets everyone worked up. But you've actually got to take a look at the, the governing bodies who themselves firstly are competent to understand the research. Because trust me, I've read some of those research papers and I mean, I get lost in the summary up front. They, they're really <laughs> technical. Uh, so it's nice to have people that actually understand the research reviewing the research. And these are the guys that look at that, and they come to the conclusion or they really derive the safe working limits. And keep in mind, the safe working limits have big safety factors built in mm -hmm. as well. So it's, it's not even just a case of that if you go over the occupational limit, there's no uh, headroom built in. There's actually a big safety factor built in, and the same as we do in many industries. I mean, if you, if you just take a normal concrete suspended slab, there's a safety factor built in there for many reasons, just to account for a couple unknowns or things that may go wrong the day that you're pouring the concrete. So the RF industry and RF safety is actually a very conservative um, approach, and rightly so, because we don't need any surprises, and it's such a prevalent technology that we're going to be using extensively. and I mean, if we, if we look at the roadmap of 5G and how it's already coming into play and things like that, it's a technology that's not going away anytime soon. It's going to be growing more and more and more. And, and so I think research will continue. And I think one of the things to understand about research is research can't prove a negative. Um, I've often said this in training, you know, research, a good researcher can only tell you what he's studied and what his conclusion is on that. So we don't know everything. But we look in places where you would expect there to be something and you can draw a conclusion from what you've studied. So if you look at proper research summaries, they will always tell you and they'll say that, you know, to date, looking at all the research done, that they see no um, adverse health effects and things like that. So, you know, personally, I always say, look, look at the, the technical guys who work in the space. I mean, I've been in cell phone design, and trust me, I don't even use a, a headset. I, I've got my cell phone against my ear, and part of a lot of the work I do, I've spent a lot of time on rooftop sites, I've done a lot of training, and also in labs where we work with big transmitters. I mean, I've, I've been doing body-worn studies where I myself was a subject, and we were playing with a kilowatt transmitter, and, you know, I'm still relatively normal, I don't know, you guys can maybe <laughs> comment on that. Uh, but it's a, it's a topic that continues to be researched uh, because really there's a high incentive to make sure it's safe and really our governments do that. Well, like you said, if something were to be problematic with the technology, we would, we would have seen it already. And at the point that that would happen, it would be a global crisis. 
Exactly. There are billions of people that have cell phones on them every day. And, That's it. And those frequencies are all around us, even if you don't have a cell phone. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think some of those yep. uh, conspiracy websites are, are way out there. And like you said, it's all sensational. Well, that's it. I mean, sensation sells. I think I think that's a sad thing in our industry. Sensation sells. And you can't really blame the media for it because, you know. They got to pay the bills too. They got to pay the bills too. But you actually got to look to the people like sensation. So mm-hmm. we ourselves, I mean, you're not going to buy a newspaper if the headlines are, you know, all's good, same as yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So people <laughs> like sensation. And that's the thing. We, we, we tend to be our own greatest enemies. Um, and just coming back to some, some years back, I think it was Denmark, one of the countries that have a very good cancer registry and they were just sharing this sort of this this um, sanity check on we should see an impact by now and they were showing some graphs as as the country both men and women um, the prevalence of cellular technologies in the country and with that just graphs of um, it was a specific type of brain cancer I don't recall the one that they're looking at but some of those incidences are on the decline Mm. they're not on the increase Um, so there's a lot of these things that you know people sort of refuse to believe that maybe the technology could be good for you or it's just negligible Um, but yeah I mean just as as you've said you know by now we should have seen something if there is a if there is going to be a huge impact we would have known it by now. So the FieldSense device, outside of monitoring and giving you feedback on RF exposure, what other features are built into that unit? Well, I think we've, we, we tried to make the device firstly as usable as possible. I think one of the problems with a lot of um, equipment given to guys working on masts is it's not very practical, and that's quite often because the guys designing it themselves have never climbed a mast. Now, because you know we spend a bit of time in the field and that, I really firstly wanted to make sure that the guys using it are actually comfortable with it. So, you know, number one, if, you've got, if you give someone a piece of equipment that's unnecessarily heavy, chunky, um, it doesn't have a proper attachment mechanism. Ultimately, what happens is the crew are not going to be using it. Um, they're going to take it and just throw it in the gear bag, or they're going to leave it in the pickup. Uh, so we, we really, primarily, I try to um, get a design where you can, for instance, attach it to your harness um, in an area where it doesn't bother you, and it's got to be lightweight, and of course, it's got to be robust uh, because you know things things take a beating up on the site. So it's got to be really robust. It doesn't help we send you out with a piece of equipment that it takes one small bump and it's broken. Um, and then, once again, you could have a risk of exposure thinking the device is working and it mm-hmm. isn't. So making it robust was, was really key. And then, you know, sort of while we were at it, I mean, there's, there's, let's say there's all the basics of actually assessing and recording the, the RF exposure properly. So we just got, you know, understanding that you need to measure both the E and the H fields, that it's a shaped response, um, it's logging the data all the time. But a couple of little extra things that we built in, which is handy for a climber, and I think this comes from the fact that we climb ourselves, is what are the other things that impact a climber? And, and the one thing we thought about was, of course, um, were you to take a fall and accidentally knock yourself unconscious? Now, at that point, you know, you, you're, you're attached by your shock-absorbing lanyards, but the person climbing with you may not have noticed you've taken a fall. And so you could be hanging there and... Um, one of the problems with this is suspension trauma kicks in. So it basically means you could have blood clots forming in your legs because your circulation's cut off. Then that actually kicks in pretty quickly. So we built in what we call the, the fall detection system. And literally, if you take a fall of about, what's it, two, two meters, what's it, six feet, somewhere, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that, it's going to sound an alarm, and it's going to keep sounding that alarm until someone switches it off. And that's hopefully, hopefully to assist in drawing attention to you if you've taken a fall. I mean, obviously, if you do take a small fall and you're still 
uh, conscious, you're just going to switch it off yourself. But it really, it's going to help you. And I mean, some of the guys have said to me, well, it also helps in case they drop the, if, if they drop the device off the mast, at least they can find it in the grass <laughs> later. <laughs> so that's kind of like the, uh, the, the dead man siren on firefighting equipment. That yeah. If they're not moving for long enough, it starts to sound an alarm to alert others around them that that's maybe it. someone's in trouble. That's it. And I mean, this is not really, a, it's, it's not a core feature, but I think it just points to the fact that we've tried to understand what our clients need and, and build it in. And I mean, another small thing we built in was just um, audio notes. Um, because quite often when you're up on a site, y you might need to just take a quick audio note to remind yourself to do something or you're jotting down serial numbers. And unfortunately, normally that would mean whooping out your cell phone. And I'm sure there's a lot of guys who will be able to, to like just like, you know, respond to this and say how many times they've dropped their cell phone off mm -hmm. a mast because your cell phone no longer comes with a tether point or anything like that. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of guys have dropped their phones. So we, we put in audio notes, so literally a quick double tap on the button and you can um, record audio, which you can access when you plug it into the PC and download the logs. So it's gonna have the same timestamp as the, the exposure logs on the device. So these are just small things um, we, we sort of put in to make your life as easy as possible. And um, yeah, I think another one of the other big pain points that we sort of try to focus on is calibration. I think a lot of people are accustomed to Let's call it the pains of calibration in that you're, you have a bit of downtime. Uh, if you send devices away for calibration, it takes a long time before you get them back. And so we, we really wanted to limit this impact um, as much as possible. And we, th we thought about ways of doing that. And, and this is where the, the approach we follow is, is let's say, completely non-conventional. So when your device is up for Cal, there's a sticker on it which tells you the Cal expiry. You're going to be sending it in to the central distribution point and you are actually getting swapped out for I think it's $150 you get swapped out with a fully refurbished device immediately there's no downtime um, and the only reason why we can do that is because I trust my devices you know we designed them really rugged so those old devices come back to me and we in batches fully rebuild them so we completely take them apart to rebuild them um, make sure they're fully calibrated, they pass all production testing, and those devices are in the pool of uh, refurbished devices. So all these things is really just to lower your total cost of ownership, to, to lower the pain points. And, and, and so that's really our philosophy. So we try to, we, we really, you know, it sounds foolish, but not everyone actually responds to their clients' needs. And we try as best as possible to, to give our clients what's, what they need. That's awesome. And that, that kind of speaks to why the device has been so successful all these years and um, why I'm sure it will continue to be uh, the industry standard, if you will. Um, I guess, is there anything else that uh, we missed or that you'd like to touch on at this point? I think one of the things, as I said, uh, we, we definitely like hearing from our clients. Um, so we've just got back from um, Nate down in Texas and, and these are excellent opportunities where I get to speak to our clients and, and hear from them exactly what they need and so, you know, if, if ever you have any suggestions or recommendations or things, feel free to send me an email. It's just info at fieldsense.com. Drop me a line and, I mean, send me any radical, crazy, interesting ideas. The nice thing is when, when we're in a design cycle, then I take as many of these into account as possible. And, and I mean, just actually going back in time on the, on the old generation device, uh, shout out to General Dynamics. One of our clients came to us and said, oh, they wanted to modify something that we had on the lens. And we made some custom stickers for them that sort of overlaid on the lens. And directly after that, we rolled that into the main product because it worked so well. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you know, we try as far as possible to listen to our clients. And like I say, please drop me a mail or, um, yeah, reach out to me any way you can. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Max. And uh, like you said, you can reach out to Max directly, talk to one of our gear experts if you have any questions about the device, about RF safety. Um, we also partner with a company called Safety LMS that does RF training, uh, both in person, online, anything like that. So it's it's really important. And as Max said, it doesn't make a, a big difference if you have the device, but you don't know the information that it's outputting. So that's that's all great information. Yeah, and we'd also like to remind everyone that while this show is meant to be fun, entertaining, and informative, it's not intended to replace proper in-depth training like Alex mentioned. Manufacturer's instructions must also be followed and reviewed before any equipment is used. We'd like to hear from you about why you climb. Email us a voice message at gearup at gearexperts.com about why you climb and what climbing means to you for a chance to be featured on the show. And win some swag, of course. We hope you had fun and found a lot of value in today's episode. You can find out more information and detailed show notes at gearexperts.com slash episode 10. Get social with us at Gear Expert Show, at GME Supply, and at COL Safety on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Gear Up with Gear Experts is available on all major podcast listening platforms. Hit that subscribe button if you're new to the show. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. If you've got a few extra seconds to drop a rating and review in iTunes and let us know how we're doing, that'd be awesome. Gear Up with Gear Experts is presented, produced, and edited by GME Supply and Columbia Safety and Supply. Your hosts are Alex Giddings and John Medina. And until next time, climb higher. Climb higher.